Hello, my name is Gabe Howard, and I am the host of the Not Crazy Podcast, and you are listening to Slapcast. It is so good to be here today, everyone. I can't even tell you how excited I am. First of all, we are already on episode 20 here, so if you'd be so kind to like and subscribe and feel free to contact me anytime at slapcast at relayleadership.org. We are only posting one of these every other week, but I'm telling you, I feel really proud that we've hit 20 episodes. I'm really excited about this. Now, we are at the start of November and like a lot of people I know, we are in the thick of planning for 2020. And I can tell you, we have some amazing ideas, programs, and learning opportunities on the horizon. There's one yet this year and a couple others in the very near future that I want to make sure to tell you about. So first, we have a workshop. It's our flagship program. It's called Care to Lead. It's a six-hour workshop. We get it all done in one day. It's about awakening the servant leader in you. This is a program that focuses on your mindset, but also we give you lots of tips and strategies and tactics for showing up like a servant leader. It takes place on December 12th. It's at Cohatch and Worthington. All you need to do is go to relayleadership.com slash care to lead. You can find all the details and information on registering. Listen, it's only 250 bucks. That's for a full day workshop, your materials, and we feed you plenty of snacks, coffee, and we give you like a whole lunch. So make sure you sign up for care to lead on December 12th. We already have, I think about, I don't know, 15 or 20 signed up. So we're already getting a a pretty full house. So it's going to be a great group. The other two opportunities, they actually don't begin until 2020, but because we're in enrollment now, I want to make sure you're aware. The first is next gen. Next gen is a 10 month program. It's It's primarily for young professionals who are high potential, high performing young people who want to be or are in their first leadership role. It provides you with the emotional skills and the mindset, the growth mindset that you need to really accelerate your career. We want to help new leaders or would-be leaders to stop thinking like individual contributors and start thinking like leaders. Listen, Leaders make decisions differently than individual contributors, and it takes emotional intelligence to do this. So what we do in NextGen is we focus heavily on emotional intelligence. We help you work on your mindset. You get coaching, advisory, or mentorship. You get assessments, lots of workshops. You can learn more. You can either nominate yourself or a rising star at your organization. All you have to do is go to nextgenleaders.com. That is spelled N as in Nancy, N-X-G-E-N leaders.com. But you do need to hurry because even though the program doesn't start till January 30th and 31st with our two-day kickoff, we do need to know by December 13th if you're in because there's assessments that take place ahead of time. There's a little bit of very light pre-work. And so we actually need to know well before that January 30th kickoff date. Then we have ExecGen. ExecGen is for professionals that have 20 or plus years experience. And preferably they have supervisory experience, okay? This program will enhance your established leadership style and then challenge you to embrace a servant leader mindset and style so that you can really elevate who you already are as a leader. 
We also work on mindset in this program, emotional intelligence. In ExecGen, you get several assessments, not only for yourself, but we train you in one of them so that you can use them for your team. You also receive 10 one-hour, one-on-one executive coaching sessions, and that alone right there is worth half of the fee for the program. So you get a ton of executive coaching from licensed and certified executive coaches in Columbus, Ohio. So this program packs a ton of value. You are not going to want to miss that if you fall into that category. So if someone you know, or even you yourself wants to be a part of ExecGen, for that program, you're going to go to the Relay website at RelayLeadership.com slash ExecGen. And similar to NextGen, there's a nomination form there. All you have to do is click on it and follow the instructions. So on today's episode, we have Gabe Howard. I met Gabe several years ago when he spoke for us at one of our events. Gabe is a speaker, an author, a podcast host, and a truly funny guy. And he's someone who lives with bipolar disorder. He talks about this on his podcasts. He speaks about this all over the place, and he's asked to do this for good reason. He has a book. It's called Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. It's a book that helps make mental illness a little less scary and more understandable for everyone. Gabe is full of energy, and I'm really excited for you to meet him today. Okay, Gabe, it is so good to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, as I told you, Gabe, this podcast is loosely about leadership, but really we talk about what I like to talk about. That's the bottom line. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the only reason to have a podcast? It's not for the millions of dollars. It's for the attention. It is. It's for the attention and the millions of dollars. Because Wait, you get paid for this? That's I'm doing it wrong. You don't? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no. I've not received one dime. In fact, I'm down a few because I'm paying someone to help me with this. <laughs> I know. Isn't that always the way? It's like, oh, you're working for free? God, that's a goal. I would love to work. I'm working for negative dollars at right. the moment. <laughs> it's called giving back. Yes, um, yes, yes. Keep telling yourself that. But here's the thing. At the very least, we're all leading ourselves. And so I think that's why, for me at least in my journey, I think a lot about and talk a lot about mindset because I feel like mindset can impact so much of our lives. And it's where I have the most of my interest. It's what I get asked to talk about when I go and speak. And when I think about this podcast, I started thinking about guests who have really specific platforms and perspectives, and you're one of those individuals, but then also that I can have an interesting conversation around mindset. And so because I spent a lot of time on mindsets, I thought it would be interesting to explore with you how mental illness impacts mindset, right? Because maybe the strategies and tactics that I would normally suggest that people use to address thinking that doesn't serve us well, so to say, so to speak, that might not work for someone dealing with mental illness. I don't know. I'm just curious about that. So I wanted to talk about that today. Now in your official bio, I see that in 2003, you got this official diagnosis with bipolar and anxiety disorder. Um, there was a commitment to a psychiatric hospital before that. And in short, you suffered from the untreated, these untreated disorders. And um, I, I even read on your bio that you had some thoughts of suicide. I would really like, before we get into 
the, the main topic tonight, just to share with the audience a little bit about those early days and what it felt like to have no one really understand what was going on and then what happened as a result of that. Hey, this could take forever. I don't know how long this podcast is. But Reader's Digest version. Yeah, the, the Reader's Digest version is. So, so first, let's say when you said nobody knew what was going on, I, I want to point out that that included me, right? Oh, I, I didn't know what was going on. If I would have known what was going on, I would have done something about it. So I had all of these symptoms of bipolar disorder, and I thought it was just my personality. I had thoughts of suicide every single day, but I've always had thoughts of suicide. I, I was born this way. These were all of my thoughts. And because there's not really good mental health education anywhere, there's not in 2019. So there really wasn't in 1985 and 1990 and 1996 when I graduated high school. I just thought everybody thought about suicide. I thought this was just part of the human condition. And of course, that allowed all of this to fester. And I really choose fester on purpose because it would have been hard enough to deal with all of this if we would have caught it like young and early and did all the right things. But we waited until it was like a rotten moldy mess in the back of a refrigerator when nobody wanted to touch it. And like it made grandma pass out before we decided to clean the fridge. Mm -hmm. and now nobody wants to handle it or touch it. And everybody's blaming each other. How did we get here? How did this happen? And it just became a nightmare that I'm in the center of and expected to do something about. Yeah. When you finally got help, at what point along that whole path did that happen? 2003 is when I got help. And I got help in the most stereotypically way possible for a person with mental illness. I got committed to a psychiatric hospital, just straight up. One moment, I thought that everything was normal and that Gabe Howard had an awesome grasp on life and that my way of thinking was the way everybody was thinking. And the next minute, I'm locked in a ward with people watching over me. I'm on suicide watch. I'm, I'm getting you know blood taken out. People are telling me I have to go to group. I'm being told that I'm severely mentally ill. Pills and shots and scary and everything is just happening. And, and I really want to remind everybody that an hour before I was admitted to the hospital, I thought I was normal, completely normal. That's actually kind of scary because I think it might cause everyone to question like, wait, <laughs> do I need help? Um, but that actually leads me to one of the questions I had on my list was if I'm mentally ill, do I know? And it sounds like you're saying, at least in your case, cause I know you can't necessarily speak for everybody, but in your case, the answer would have been no, I, I didn't know I was mentally ill. No, would you say no that's idea. true of most? I mean... I think that it's true of a lot of people for a lot of reasons. I always like to, you know, take a little moment to give people hope and say, look, it, it, it's getting better. It, it, it's it's not 2003 anymore. And, and 2003 was better than 1980. And 1980 was a lot better than 1950. And we won't even talk about turn of the century psychiatry in this country. But improvement is still not perfect, right? When we're trying to improve things, you're not there yet. Yeah. We're not there yet, but I, I, I do want to say that because I don't want everybody to think, oh my God, it's hopeless. But to your question of are people walking around mentally ill or with mental health problems and don't know it? Uh, absolutely. Unequivocally. And there's multiple reasons for this. The first one is it, we don't have mental health training in this country. None, no education. I, I have never broken my leg. 
I have never broken any bone in my entire body, but I know basically what that looks like. I know what that might feel like. And if somebody told me that I had a broken bone, I would be like, okay, a doctor's got to set that bone. Then they're going to put a cast on it. I'm going to have to use crutches or a sling. All of my friends are going to sign it. And I'm not going to wonder, how do I explain this to my mother? And is she going to be ashamed of me? I have all of this knowledge about something that has never, ever, 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 ever happened to me. This doesn't exist with mental illness. It doesn't exist with a mental health crisis. And more importantly, that shame component. The last part of my analogy is I'm going to have to wonder if my mom's going to be ashamed of me. So many people believe that mental illness is a result of a bad family. And I was one of those people. See, my family, they, they, they kind of knew that I was weird. They're, they're not, they're not unobservant. Sorry. Let me start over. My family knew that I was weird. They're they're not unobservant. They, They knew that I was different from other kids and that I reacted things differently. I mean, they were punishing me for what we would later find out were symptoms of bipolar disorder. So they had this idea in their head that something was up, but they never thought it was a mental health issue because they were good parents. And they were. This story does not zag to the left where I tell you that my parents beat me or that my mother hated me. No, they were good parents. My father had a job. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. The family ate dinner at the table. We were all heavily engaged with one another. Like, for real, they wouldn't leave me alone for nothing. (laughs) So, therefore, it couldn't be mental illness because otherwise we would have to admit that my family was bad. We believed this nonsense. That is so true. That never... That is such great insight because... And, and I think some of this might be generational and I know that's a broad, gen- that is a broad generalization, but what it's I mean a by generational generalization, it is, well, that's a mouthful, <laughs> but you know what I'm getting at here is that I think for parents, I don't know how old you are. I'm 47. So for my parents, um, there, there was some undiagnosed and then later diagnosed mental illness in my family with one of my parents. And I remember when all that happened, how much shame was involved. You don't talk about these things. My grandmother didn't want to hear about it. She didn't want to hear about what was going on. It was like, let's pretend that that doesn't exist because it meant something else was wrong. Like, you know, you can't be mentally ill and also come from a good family and come from a stable home. There has to be something that went wrong in your life. And so that stigma, um, while it might be a little less today than it was then, although I don't really know how much back then, that's what I, that was the impression that was left on me when all of that happened with my mother was that there was something wrong with our family. And that stuck with me for decades decades. And it's, I am almost embarrassed to admit it's only been in the last 10 years that I realized, wait a second, this didn't have anything to do with my mom's childhood or anything that my grandma or grandpa did, but just my mom is mentally ill. And you're right back in the eighties, which is when she was diagnosed, it was more, it was way more the practice of mental illness medicine, like of psychiatry and psychology was seemed like to me in retrospect, a lot more practice than it was anything else because the medicine that they had her on, um, she was catatonic. I mean, it was, it was a mess and it took years for them to get that right years. And so all of that was really scary because none of us understood any of it. And here's the thing. It's not much different now. One of the things that you said is it took years to get the right medication and there was a lot of trial and error. Here we are all the way in 2019 and it still takes months, if not years to get the correct medication. There is still a trial and error component because, and this one blows people away. 
all medicine is trial and error. That's true. There, there are best practices, but most medicine is trial and error. You know, if, if they, if you break your leg, go back to that analogy and they set it and they put a cast on it. And six weeks later, it's not healing. They do something different and they use the research and the study. And they're like, okay, well, we figured out the reason that it's not getting better is because of this. And they have, you know, doctors have a checklist that they check. It works the same way for mental health issues and mental illness. The problem is, is that mental illness tends to impact young people Mm -hmm. and young people have a couple of major flaws. The first one is they're stupid. The second one is they're (laughs) invincible. And I I count myself in this group. I I am not. Gabe Howard was once young, which meant that I was stupid and thought I was invincible. So here I am, 25 years old, and a doctor is explaining medicine to me. I don't need medicine. Medicine is something old people need. Right. I, I don't need treatment. Treatment is something old people do. I, I don't have any understanding of this because it hasn't been my experience because in general, young people are healthy. So my understanding about mental health and mental illness was exactly the same as like pink eye. Like, okay, I, I believe that I have bipolar. Fine. Give me some eye drops. I'll be done in a couple of weeks. I believe that I have the flu. Give me the shot and I'll be done in a couple of weeks. They're like, no, you have a lifelong illness that you have to manage. Yeah. None of those words mean anything to me. I I don't know what a lifelong illness is. People my age don't get lifelong illnesses. And then of course that becomes another problem, right? I went to talk to all my peers. So here I am 25 years old. I'm taking seven pills a day. I'm going to the therapist once a week. I'm going to support groups. I'm going to doctors. And I tell all of my friends, you know, the people who I trust more than anybody in the world, Hey, I'm doing this. And they're like, that's dumb. Stop. (laughs) Yeah. Of course they think I should stop. And then they say things like, ah, dude, he just seems to be pushing pills on you. (gasps) That's true. When I go to the doctor, they give me pills. (laughs) Oh my God, Jim, you're right. You have figured it out. And now all of a sudden I'm getting my medical advice from, you know, the internet and Jim. And Jim and the internet, they're they're not good places to get medical advice. And of course I've now vilified my doctor. So that's even worse, right? My doctor is no longer helping me. He's now the villain. The pharmaceutical companies are no longer researching and making cures. No, 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 no. They're big pharma. Oh yeah. They've got to be the big, bad, big, bad guy. And so now all of a sudden, all the people who are in a position to help somebody like me have been set up as the enemy. And it's not hard to push me that way because I'm young, I'm stupid, I'm vulnerable, I'm scared. And oh yeah, let's really, you know, talk about the elephant in the room. Did I mention I'm severely mentally ill? (laughs) And this is why people like me end up in really, really bad situations. Do you think there are any, and this is going to be potentially a controversial question. I don't know, but do you, you ask it like I'm ready. Do you think there are any communities that tend to, um, over like to this day, over stigmatize mental illness or create more barriers towards mental health for those who are mentally ill within that community, um, that have not progressed in that destigmatization as much as the rest of culture has. So I'm, I'm, that was really a roundabout way to ask it, but I feel like, I feel like the world has grown in their knowledge around these things. Now there's still a lot of growth that's needed, but do you think there are certain communities where it seems like that has not happened and people who are entrenched in those communities have a harder time getting help or seeking help 
because of the shame, because of that community. Does that make sense? Yes. Men suck. I, that is probably the biggest group when we talk about, you know, is there a group of people who are causing mental health stigma and issues for people with mental illness more than anybody else? I would have to say men. Interesting. And uh, I, I will, I will use my own personal example because that's the best one. All I could think of when I got sick was, oh my God, I'm not a strong man. I, I, I gotta be a man. I got, you know, you know, men, men don't deal with this. You're, I'm sorry. Men don't cry. Men don't, you know, men go to work. Men put food on the table. Men are strong. Men are tough. Men aren't in a corner crying because they're scared. That That's some bullshit right there. You get out and work, son. Right. And I, I just, I, I was terrified. Buck up. <laughs> terrified to tell my father. And I, I just... And, 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 and here's the fascinating part about being terrified to tell my father. So I'm scared to tell my father all of this. Now he already heard I was in the psychiatric hospital. He already heard that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. You know, I got, I got mom to handle that, but now I'm, I'm seeing my dad for the first time. We're standing there and it's the dark. And I said to my dad and I said, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing a therapist. And I was, I was scared to tell him, I was scared to tell my father this. My dad is a semi truck driver. He is, he is tough as nails. He drives a giant truck uh, and he inhales diesel fumes all day. So he's, he's just a really stereotypically blue collar guy. You know, he taught me all of the stuff that a man should know, you, you know, how to shave with the grain and don't wear Axe body spray unless you're a wuss, uh, you know, hold open doors for women be the man of the house. I mean, it, 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 I, it, it was so stereotypical. I'm almost ashamed to admit it. And I said to my dad, I said, I, I I'm seeing a therapist. And I just kind of held my breath because I expected my father to say something like, Oh dude, you don't, why are you talking to somebody like that? And my dad said, I see a therapist too. And I said, what? What? And I said it exactly. What? He goes, yeah. After your mother and I went to marriage counseling, it turned out that I was a lot of the problems. So your mom <laughs> stopped going and I stayed. <laughs> Wait, what? You, you, you saw a therapist about your marriage? You accepted that you were the problem and stayed? And I'm just I why didn't you tell me? And he's like, well, that, that's not the kind of thing a father tells his children. Look, he now knows how nonsense that is. Right. That's just, that's, that's such incredible nonsense, but that's what he believed. He believed that being a good man was protecting your children from, you know, some of the suckier things about life. Yeah. This is what, this was a value for him. He wasn't trying to be mean, but as I've pointed out to him, could you imagine if I believed in that value so much that I refused to see a therapist? that I refuse to talk about my feelings and that I would have been trapped with suicide as my only way out. What if I would have rejected this? Because after all, I wanted to be like my dad. Yeah. I would, I would have been in harm's way for nothing because being like my dad was admitting that I had a problem and seeing a therapist just like my dad did. But I didn't know that. And I talked to so many people that are like, I'm not doing that. That's, that's for namby pambies and all they, they say much worse, but I'm trying to be polite. And, and I just think this is, this is so sad. You, it's really, really tough to talk about your feelings. Like it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but you think that is weakness. Yeah. Wow. You've got it backwards. Well, I mentioned earlier, we talk a lot about mindset and leadership, um, in the, in our organization relay, but also on the podcast. And so kind of segueing into this idea of mindset in a nutshell, when we talk about mindset, we talk about 
separating what we have control and what we don't have control over. And what we have control over is maybe not our initial thought, but what we think about that afterwards, which impacts the way we feel that influences the way we act and gets us a lot of our results. And so we talk about this as a model for, um, showing up in the world and changing your experience and those kinds of things. As I started thinking about you being on the show, I don't know, and I'm, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I don't know that, first of all, I know that that model is not, none of us perceives the world and experiences our life in a, in a linear way like that. So I understand that. And that's true for everybody. But then it got me thinking about the people in my life that have diagnosed mental illness that I, I know what they struggle with all the time. And I realized that for someone like that, and of course that's not, I'm not trying to speak to every audience, but if you happen to be in my audience and you're hearing some of those things, you might be thinking or feel a little defeated when that doesn't work for you. And I want to control those things, but I can't. And I don't even know that there's a need to do, you know what I'm saying? Like if there's a mental illness involved, is there any, um, or to what degree can someone really help themselves through mindset work or through like cognitive therapy, that kind of stuff? Is that, is there a hope for people in that? And, um, or not, or is that just something that's out of their reach? Cause I always wonder about that. You know, does that seem when I'm saying those things, does that seem very, um, just unrealistic to that group of people? So you're, you're, you're right. And you're wrong all at the same time. Here's one of the things that I hate about mental health advocacy. We call it mental health advocacy. Could you imagine that if instead of like cancer support groups or diabetes support groups or uh, cancer advocacy or uh, just uh, just on and on and on, we just had physical health advocacy? Yeah. And with whenever something bad happened to you physically, we just said, oh, she's having a physical health issue. So the person who has the flu, physical health issue, and the person who just got shot 47 times in the chest would both be suffering from a physical health issue. No, those are worlds apart, right? There, there is just absolutely nothing in common with the flu and taking 47 rounds in the chest. But this is what we, this is how we talk in mental health advocacy all the time. So the person who is literally in the throes of psychosis, they believe that monsters are eating their brain, they're hearing voices, they're running through screaming, they have lost cognitive function. And the person who is suffering from grief from the loss of their, you know, parent or child or a death in the family are both talked about as if they're exactly the same. That and this makes so it harder to have an intelligent discussion. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That's actually really helpful to me because I had not separated it like that at all. And most people haven't. And to narrow down what you're saying a little more, here's where it kind of gets sucky, right? The person on the other end of the spectrum, the person, you know, screaming and running down who has lost cognitive function, they really aren't in control of anything. They need crisis intervention and support. But there will come a point relatively quickly where they will be able to function cognitively. And then they will need to start doing the right things. They will need to start accurately reporting their symptoms, being honest with the medical providers, taking the pills as prescribed or going to treatment on time, showing up at the doctor's office, uh, just being forthcoming and honest and open because there's no test for any of this stuff. Yeah. So even the worst case scenario in mental illness, there's really only a small window 
where somebody is so far gone, they can't affect change. And that window closes rapidly. And once that window closes, no matter how sick you are, no matter how mentally ill you are, the medical establishment is relying on you to provide data so that they can give you good care. And how you provide that data will determine how well you do. So the onus is still back on the sick person. That's much, much easier, for example, in the grief model because you have full control of your faculties. You're just overcome by this really, really bad yeah. thing that happened. But, you know, it, people understand it. So you have really good, usually supports, you know, people say, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, Gabe. I, I know that you miss your, you know, fill in the blank of who died, Like people are understanding. So they encourage you to get help. That doesn't necessarily exist. And all of these things whirlwind together to sort of create this, this brush fire mentality. And it, it sucks. It really sucks because everything that you do has equal opportunity to help or hurt. And people often are looking for reasons to call the whole thing BS and quit entirely. And those people, they almost never do well. Yeah. I, when I think about this comparison to like a physical issue, you know, if I had a broken arm, um, I'm feeling this physical pain. And if I went and said to Jonathan, look at my arm, I think there's something wrong. He would say, we need to get you to a hospital. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. Like I can define it. I can touch it. I can feel it. Whereas when I'm in mental anguish or some kind of mental illness, even if it's situational, right. Even if it's not a systemic problem for my whole life, even if it's a, you know, cause I have experienced situational depression and I'm not comparing that to people who deal with lifelong issues at all, but having experienced a taste of that myself, I will tell you that when I went to people that I trusted for help, because I knew something wasn't right. That's all I knew. The response was not like it would have been if I'd walked in with my arm halfway hanging off my body, right? Someone said to me, well, you just need to chill out, take a volume and relax. Like you're just, you're overreacting. And it was not treated like it was something. And I think, and I wonder if it's because we can't put a form in a, around it. And that goes back to your one of the first things you pointed out, which is there's no education. Like we don't know what we're dealing with here. Our kids don't know what they're dealing with. And that makes me want to ask another question about children and parents. And I'm wondering if you have any input on this. If I'm a parent and I'm, you know, dealing with my kids, cause you experienced this on the other end as the child, what can I look for to know that this isn't a behavioral issue, right? That, you know, I don't want to keep disciplining this kid and, and creating punitive responses when really what they need is support and they need intervention. Is there a way to help parents to better discern what's going on so that they can make the next right move for their kid? We could do an entire podcast series <laughs> on what parents should look out for and still not cover every possible scenario. So what I really want to focus on is parents kind of get screwed in this country. And uh, I, I don't know how they, I don't know what happens in other countries, but, but in America, parents, especially moms get screwed because they're expected to have all the answers. They're expected to know what's going on with their kid, how their kid is feeling, what their kid is thinking. And there's this, there's this real pressure on parents, mostly mothers to never make a mistake which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to mental illness, we've already discussed all of the stigma. So we don't have to worry about that. We already know that that's a thing in our society. And then 
you're a parent and you're expected to determine whether or not your kid is bad or sick. Well, sick is scary and uh, mm. bad is normal. So if your kid is bad, it's not great to be the parent of a bad kid, but it's better than being the parent of a crazy kid. <laughs> because if you're the parent of a crazy kid, you're a bad mother. You're a bad father. Your household is somehow dysfunctional. Your kid is probably manipulating you. You're making it all up. Oh my God, you've bought into the pharmaceutical industry's BS. And, and there's just all this unwanted and unsolicited advice that's coming in. Of course, there's a whole bunch of unwanted and unsolicited advice coming in if your kid is bad too. Let's, let's not forget that. You know, if you ever need parenting advice, ask somebody who doesn't have children because <laughs> they know everything. If that you so ever true. want help with your mentally ill child or a child who you suspect has a mental health problem, ask somebody with no experience in mental health. And they do. They do all the time. Suspicion is all you need. And I really, 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 really want to empower any parent that suspects, just suspects, that's all you need, a, a, a lingering doubt, a passing thought, a, a tiny suspicion to pick up their child and make an appointment with a mental health professional because there's only two outcomes. One, you will find out that your child is just an asshole and therefore has no mental health issue. And then you can proceed appropriately with punishment or you will find out that your child is sick and in need of help and you're at the help. But people aren't willing to do this. Yeah. They, they just aren't. And uh, for, for my family, my family wasn't willing to do this because they didn't know. Mm -hmm. They just didn't know. It wasn't because they were mean. It was because they did not know. And many families still fall under that. They don't know. And for the families that do know, they're afraid of what the neighbors will think or of what their parents will think. Or uh, the number of times I hear the phrase, well, we didn't have this crap in my generation. Right. Well, that's fantastic. You want to hear all the other stuff that we didn't have in your generation? You, you know, like civil rights. I mean, let's go back far enough. Women couldn't vote. You, you want to go back there? Uh, where do we end? Right. Generations change, dumbass. Stop <laughs> repeating this. But people do. And they think that it's factual. And we fall into it every damn time. Oh, you're right. That didn't exist 20 years ago. So it's not a good idea now. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's nonsense. Just but, because man, it didn't exist does not mean... It. And by the way, it did exist. <laughs> we shut those people away and, and eliminated them from society. That's what, exactly. that's what we did. That's why exactly. grandpa didn't experience any mental ill coworkers because they were sent away before they, they ever got a job. Automized and tortured. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a reason this didn't exist, quote unquote. Oh my goodness. Now, one time, I'm not sure if you remember this. But I reached out to you because I had a family member I was concerned about. And I think I reached out to you like on Facebook Messenger or something. And I asked you a question and I'm going to ask you here to share with everyone because you gave me some great advice. My question was along the lines of what if I believe a family member is really struggling with mental illness and I'm not sure that they're aware, but it's really clear to everyone. Where's the line? Right. I don't I don't I'm not trying to control anybody. At the same time, I had some real concerns for their welfare. And I reached out to you and said, what do you think are some appropriate steps for me that respect them as an individual? But at the same time, you know, I was feeling this grave responsibility to act because I thought if there really is a, a true mental illness crisis going on here, more than likely they're not able to act in their own best interest. And so I'd reach out to you. I don't know if you remember that or not. It doesn't really matter. 
I remember asking the question and you gave me some great um, steps to take that actually were very helpful. So I want to pose it again to you today because every single one of us knows somebody. The question is, will we come across someone in our close circle that is going through a crisis and, and will we know what to do? Um, and I know you said to us once when you spoke for us a long time ago that doing nothing, doing something wrong is better than doing nothing. Um, but specifically, what do I, what can we do if we suspect someone is in crisis? What are some initial steps we can take? And I'm not talking about a child now. I'm talking about an adult that might be a friend or a family member. The first thing is, is let's respect crisis. If you feel that they are a danger to themselves or others, do not pass go, call 911, get get mental health help immediately. Put them in the car, drive them to the, the emergency room. This is not something that you want to play around with. I know there's a lot of people who love to post these memes. Would you stay up all night and talk your friend out of suicide? The answer to that should always be no, because you've already called 911 and gotten them help. And that's that's really important to understand. We're not professionals, so we don't want to behave like professionals. So if you suspect that suicide is imminent, they're a danger to themselves or others, call 911, go to the emergency room. So now let's talk about before we get to the crisis point, because hopefully to, to your point with our loved ones, we can see that stuff is off before they reach that crisis point, because, you know, they're our family, they're our friends. We, we know when things are starting to, to appear off, right? Just something's a little off. What I highly recommend is the the straightforward, candid, but partnership approach. So often people walk up to somebody and they're like, you know, you're just not yourself. You need a doctor or what's wrong with you? Well, I, I don't I don't know what's going on here. You need to. And then we start telling people what to do. That's very scary. And frankly, it's it's also like. It's going to make anybody dig in. Yeah. I mean, just walk up to somebody and telling them they're doing their job wrong makes people dig in their heels and they're, they're, there's no mental health or mental illness issue going on. So I, I recommend the respectful approach, you, you know, Hey, John, is everything okay? You know? Yeah. Why? Because that's generally the answer that you get. Just, just point out what you've noticed, you know, just, I, I've been a little worried about you because I've seen X, Y, Z be there for them. Mm-hmm. Let them talk. What you're trying to do is make a partnership with that person. You're trying to get them to confide in you what is wrong and see you as part of the solution to what's wrong. The reason that you don't want to tell them what's wrong is because, you know, listen, it's, it's, it's potato, potato, right? You're telling them that you see a potato and they're like, I don't see a potato. You're just an idiot, but because they see a potato and (laughs) you're both talking about the same thing, but you've described it differently. It's, it's different in your head. It's, you, you know, it's just your wires are getting crossed and they quickly see you as the enemy. Well, yeah, you don't open up to your enemy. They're also probably afraid and they're afraid that you might overreact and they have to protect themselves. And especially people who have dealt with mental health issues and mental illness for a while, we all have that story of that person who overreacted and traumatized the shit out of us. Mm -hmm. And we don't know if we can trust you yet. So I don't remember exactly how I phrased it when you sent the email, but but what I really suggest doing uh, is partnering with that person, letting them do most of the talking, setting yourselves up as an ally, and then convincing them to go seek professional help. And the best way that I have found to convince people to seek professional help, especially when they don't want to, is ask them if they'll do it for you. So, yeah. you know, there, there, there might be nothing wrong here. You, you could be completely right, John, but you know, will you go for me? Can we go together? Can you just get it checked out? 
you know, say whatever is meaningful to them. Dude, you've worked your whole life and you have health insurance. It's time to spend some of those dollars. You know, <laughs> you, you don't have time for your health. What's more important than your health? That is hey, let's go. They're going to prove me wrong. Ha ha ha. I'll buy you dinner. Uh, this stuff really, really works because if they think they're helping you, well, yeah, then they're doing it because their friend is crazy. And th- this really does jumpstart the process. Well, that that is basically what you told me, and it worked wonderfully with this, oh, thank God. this, this family member. <laughs> it, it, really, it really did help. Now, before we go, um, I, I want to let the audience know, and then I'm going to give you a chance to tell them how to connect with you, but... Gabe is a tremendous public speaker. Um, he does this all the time. You can book him. Uh, he is, he's based right out of central Ohio, but he goes all over the place. So Gabe share with us a little bit, just real quickly. Tell us about the book, um, how people can get a hold of you, how, um, they can connect with you on social media. How can they book you to come speak all of that kind of stuff? How can people get in touch with you and, uh, get uh, connected to what you're doing? Yeah. Thank you so much. The the first thing that I want to plug straight off are the two podcasts. They're completely free and you clearly like listening to podcasts because you're listening to a podcast. (laughs) The first one is the Psych Central podcast. I interview guest experts on the subject of psychology and mental health, and I force them to explain it to people like my parents. Because so often we want to get this information about psychology and mental health, but we don't understand it. And we try to read up on it, but we're not getting good information. So I pull in experts in all of these fields and I have them explain it using simple words, everyday language. And the show's like 25 minutes. It's really short and you'll learn a lot. The next show that I have is called Not Crazy. It's the Not Crazy podcast. It's hosted by me and a young woman named Jackie. I live with bipolar. She lives with depression. And it's it's real, no boundaries talk about life with a mental health issue, with mental illness, and how we perceive the world. Because, you know, we have stuff to say. And so often it's not looked at through the lens of people who are living with these issues. It's looked at through the lens of people who are worried about people living with this issue. Plus we swear. I mean, we just swear all the time. So it's, it's a pretty fun show and we cover lots of really, really cool things. So the psych central podcast can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. The not crazy podcast can be found at psychcentral.com slash not crazy. Of course, the psych central podcast and not crazy are available on every single media player that you can find. If it plays podcasts, we are there. Nice. I'm also the author of Mental Illness as an Asshole and Other Observations. People ask me why I named the book Mental Illness as an Asshole, and I always say, because mental illness is an asshole. <laughs> it's really just a straightforward look at mental illness, at living with mental illness, at the people that I've come along. All of the articles written in the book are available for free online. It's the worst sales pitch ever. But if you want them all in one convenient location, nicely curated with all of the crappy articles deleted and removed, this is 380 pages of articles written between 2014 and 2019, all put together. And I'm really fond of saying that there is something in there that will make every single person happy. And there is something in there that will piss every single person off. And I feel that that is what a good conversation surrounding mental health and mental illness needs to do. That's a great day at work, actually. Fair. (laughs) Yeah. Right. 
Right? Right. Just because something pisses you off doesn't mean it's wrong. And just because something makes you happy doesn't mean that it's right. And I I think that we need to stop exploring things from the extremes. And and that's why I put a book together like this. And that really is why I named it Mental Illness is an Asshole, because it it needs to have that flair for the dramatic. It's it is a self-help book, but it's not one written by a doctor. Uh, I really believe that everybody should read one good book written by a doctor about their illness and this book. I, I think they're companion pieces. Yeah. I, I really, really do. And then finally, of course, I have a website because it's 2019 and everybody has a website, GabeHoward.com. That's where you can find all my social stuff. And if you're really still listening to this and you haven't just turned it off yet, you can also email me at Gabe at GabeHoward.com. And I will get around to answering your emails eventually, I promise. Hey, you answered mine and now you're here. So there you go. That is true. You know, I, I, I've got to realize that there is a dark underside to answering emails, but, you know, I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I loved being here. Thank you so sincerely. Thank you for talking about this subject. So many places don't. Thank you so much, Gabe. We really appreciated having you on the podcast today, on the Slapcast, I should say. And uh, we'll see you soon. 